Welcome to another episode of Relationship Rewire, where we talk about what's right and what's wrong with relationships and marriage in our world today. The following episode was recorded live at a marriage conference held in February of this year. It's taken from a video version, which has been edited to make it more understandable since you don't have the advantage of seeing the graphic illustrations that were used in the presentation. Keep checking our website, growinglovenetwork.org, for the video version, which we should have up soon. It will include some of those important graphic illustrations, which will make some of the points and concepts clearer. Also, each episode in this mini-series builds on the concepts presented in the one before it. Although we have made a concerted effort to make each episode be one that can stand alone as a learning tool, you'll gain much more if you listen to each one in order, as some of the concepts rely on understanding the more basic concepts that are presented in the preceding episodes. This series is titled, How to Have Lifelong Love. This is the fourth and final episode in this series. It's titled, Why You May Be Lacking Intimacy. Well, last session of the day. That other stuff is way more fun, though. I'd like to watch the Newlywed game all day with you guys. You guys are a fun bunch of people. Is this, I, I am just so impressed with all the work that has been put into this weekend. The, the staff and the volunteers, they really, they really have done a great job, haven't they? Yeah. All right, let's jump into the next piece. Growing intimacy. So uh, I've got this formula right here for intimacy. Now, in our culture, most people you talk to and they say, we're not intimate, they, they're talking about sex. Sex is one way of doing intimacy. But intimacy can happen in all kinds of ways. Intimacy can happen very wonderfully between a father and son, between a mother and daughter, between two good friends, between... Intimacy is... Well, this is the formula right here. Intimacy is when two people are being vulnerable with each other and two people are accepting the vulnerability that they're seeing in each other. So one reason I think probably why people consider sex intimate, by the way, sex can be very unintimate. Good sex is this formula right here. Two people being vulnerable with each other and two people accepting the vulnerability. So uh, very obvious, if we're both naked, that's vulnerable, right? If I had a, if the first time Joanna saw me naked and I had a big old giant mole on the back of my rear end in the shape of Oklahoma with big hairs growing out of it, there's a lot of opportunity for non-acceptance there, right? <laughs> so she could laugh at it, which would be unaccepting. She could go, ugh, that's gross. She could say, we got to clip those hairs, John. They're like six inches long. You know, there's a lot of opportunity for unacceptance. But if instead she says, oh, that is so cute. I I love Oklahoma, you know, (laughs) then I feel accepted. So apparently in sex, we can have intimacy. But if there's not acceptance, then that's not intimate. Uh, Another, well, we'll just go ahead and, and put up here on the slide. The two most common pathways to intimacy are sex 
and conversation. Now, there's other ways of achieving intimacy, but these are the two most common. You can have intimacy without touching each other, without saying a word. You know, if you're sharing a, uh, a, something that you never shared, let's, let's say you're both standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon for the first time, and you're just staring there and looking at all its awe and beauty, and you're sharing that moment, and you're going, hey, this is, this is something, uh, you know, you, you, without saying anything, this, you're going, wow, this is awesome. And you're, and you're showing your feelings about that. You're, you're letting your guard down. You're not trying to act all tough like, yeah, it's Grand Canyon, you know. You're going, wow, this is Grand Canyon in your mind. And they're doing the same thing. And you just look at each other. And that, that, that can be intimate. I remember uh, Joanna, in fact, the, the newlywed game reminded me of this, about when, what made you th- realize that this was the one. Joanna would tell people uh, over and over again, one of, our, one of our early dates, we were babysitting the dean of our college. We were babysitting their kid while they went out on a date night. Joanna and I, so f- for a date, we, we babysat this little kid. Well, I thought it would be a good idea to watch my favorite childhood movie with this little kid, expose him to the greatest childhood movie ever, Where the Red Fern Grows. And I'd seen this movie many times, and Joanna and I are sitting there, and, and when old Dan and little Ann die, she looks over at me, and I got a tear running out of my eye. And she said, that's the moment I knew I wanted to marry John. So I was being vulnerable because I wasn't acting all tough like I usually try to do. And I was going, this really means something to me. And I was sharing that with her. She was seeing my vulnerability and accepting it. So we had an intimate moment. But most of the time, the most two common vehicles for intimacy are through sex or conversation. Now, my experience is that everybody has their preferred one of those. The one that's easiest, most comfortable for, for them to do. In other words, the one that's it's, it's easier for them to be vulnerable in that situation. And my experience is also that everybody is married to somebody who prefers the other way. Now, you may be thinking I'm talking husbands prefer sex as their avenue of intimacy and wives prefer conversation. That's probably more often the case, but I've worked with a lot of couples where it's totally flip-flopped and uh, where a husband who's, he's, he's all man, but he prefers intimacy through conversation. Woman, she's all woman, but she, she's, she's the go-getter when it comes to, uh, she's the one, the one usually initiating sex because that's her most comfortable avenue for intimacy. Here's the thing, though. Whatever one is, they always seem to be married to the opposite. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm I'm guessing maybe there's an exception in this room, but probably everybody in this room, you're going, yeah, that's us. Isn't that weird? That I prefer this avenue and they prefer that avenue. I don't think it's weird. Genesis 3 says... We are created in his image, male and female. Well, that tells me, you know, we we like to think of God as, uh, I don't don't know if we like to, but we're kind of brought up to think of God as this white bearded, maybe wrinkly, old wise looking father figure. But there's nothing in scripture that describes that. The only 
way we, I mean, probably the best, clearest picture we have is this verse right here, in his image, male and female. Another thing about the Hebrew language, uh, if, if some of you may speak some Spanish, most other languages, they, they have pr- pronouns that they just kind of use. Oh, well, we do this in the English language. Like we call a boat by a female name. And, you know, back before, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, all hurricanes were named something female. And some people were like, hey, wait a second. That's not fair. So, um, but in the Hebrew language, uh, the, the pronoun is all, when, when, when it's referring to something of deity, it always uses the masculine pronoun, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a masculine thing. So if I was a perfect person, then at the very best, I would only be half of the image of God. So the more that I am learning to love my spouse the way that they like to be loved, the more I am completing that other half of the image of God. The more that I'm pulling myself out of my comfort zone and becoming intimate in the way that they like to be intimate, the more I am completing this image of God. In fact, you know, the the Hebrew Scripture talks about uh, the two becoming one, actually in the New Testament as well. The Hebrew for that is, the best definition is one out of several ones. So it's, it's, not, it's not my other, this other person is my better half. No, it's, there's more than this, the two of us coming together and making one. There's me, you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I am becoming one by taking on more of the image of God too. So, if you think, you know, why is this uncanny thing that we're, we are just naturally attracted to somebody who likes to do intimacy very different than we do? The more I'm doing that, the more loving I'm becoming, the more I'm getting out of my comfort zone. Now, I know some of you are maybe thinking, boy, I'm really glad my wife's hearing this because you're saying, yeah, the more we have sex or maybe my husband. Yeah, he doesn't ever initiate sex. I would like sex more. And, and you're glad you're hearing this. I want you to think about it from both sides, though. There are a lot of husbands who are sitting around getting more and more angry and and resentful because their spouse is not having sex with them as much as they'd like to. But every time their spouse says, can we just sit and talk? They run like there's a plague in the room. My experience is there's a whole lot more husbands withholding conversation from their spouses, from their wives, than there are wives withholding sex from their husbands. So I was talking about this a, a few weeks ago, and a couple came up to me at the break. Well, the, the wife did. And then uh, she said, hey, come here, honey. I'm going to ask him this question. She said, you, what you're talking about is exactly our situation. I withhold sex from him because he withholds conversation from me. And he said, well, that's funny. I withhold conversation from you because you withhold sex from me. So she goes, so what do we do? I'm like, really? Isn't it, seriously, what do you do? You're sitting there waiting for the other person to do their part before you do your part. No, the way you break this cycle is you get the mirror in front of your face. What do I do? Push myself out of my comfort zone. 
to, to move into their world and become more in the image of God by learning to love in a way that's not comfortable for me. And sometimes you're going to get it wrong. Sometimes it's going to go, it's going to be disastrous. But this is why, another reason why sex is so profound is it's, it's just when you pull yourself out of your comfort zone and why conversation can be so found, profound and move into that other person's world, you are getting better at being a lover. As a marriage and family therapist in private practice, I quickly discovered that for most situations, therapy wasn't what most of the couples needed as a first step. After some time of researching why this was so, I discovered that many of the top marriage experts, such as Gary Smalley, John Gottman, and Willard Harley, had discovered the same thing. As counselors and therapists themselves, they had learned that for most who seek out marriage counseling, the best first step is often not to start with counseling, although for many it is often the best second or third step. Like me at this point, you may be wondering to yourself why this is so. Isn't that what everybody in our culture tells us to do when we are having marital problems? Go get counseling? There are several factors that contribute to this phenomenon that would take too long to explain in more than just a few minutes, but a study by the Gottman Institute at the University of Washington showed that when couples start with marriage counseling or therapy, within 24 months, only 17% of them will still be married to each other. I don't know about you, but I would not elect for any medical treatment that said there's an 83% chance of death. Over the past 12 years, I have conducted over 100 marriage intensive workshops. The reason I started doing them in the first place is because they held a promise of a much higher success rate. In fact, two separate studies have concluded that at least 70% of the couples who have attended these workshops are still married. So you see, the results of starting with counseling versus starting with a reputable intensive are overwhelmingly at polar ends of the success spectrum. I still believe in counseling. At any given time, I am working with numerous couples in a one-on-two counseling type setting. However, these are either premarital couples or couples who have already been through our Love Reboot, a marriage intensive workshop. So, if you have an okay marriage that you would like to be wonderful, if you have a stagnant marriage that seems to be more and more like two people just sharing a roof and bills, if you have recently been separated or considered separation, or either of you have suggested separation, if either one of you has considered or suggested divorce, if there's been a recent affair, or maybe you're just one of the many who has tried all sorts of approaches to growing your marriage, but none of them seem to have a lasting positive effect. If any of these applies, get to the next Love Reboot weekend that you can possibly put on your calendar. I say possibly instead of conveniently because we've seen so many couples who know they need it but can't seem to find a convenient time to make it happen. Suddenly they realize that they've come to a point where it's too late and one or both spouses is no longer willing to try. I don't know about you, but it is never convenient for me to set aside three days for something that doesn't sound like a vacation. If I needed a heart transplant but waited until it was convenient to have the surgery, well, we all know where that goes. 
Love Reboot is the relational surgery that you know you can't put off any longer. So, join the hundreds of marriages that were once eroding, failing, or headed for divorce, but are now experiencing a thriving, growing relationship with each other because of the new start that they got from attending a Love Reboot weekend. Find out when the next one is by going to our website, growinglovenetwork.org. So, another thing about intimacy is that there is no intimacy without conflict. You know when we first start dating, and, and you're asking each other these questions we were talking about last night, you know, what kind of food do you like, what kind of music do you like, and you... And it seems really cool when you, oh, you like that group? I love them too. You like that kind of, oh, that's my favorite. You think that's really, it is cool when you find stuff that's similar, but you think that's the intimate moments. Those are cool moments, but what the intimate moment is, is when you say, oh, you like that? Well, I'm not really into that, but man, I, I will do that for you. And, oh, you like that? Well, I, I, that's not my favorite but that's cool. That's okay. You can, you can like something different than me. That's the intimacy. That's when we're recognizing, hey, we're two different people, but I still accept you. I still fully accept you. So when, when I say there's no, there can be no intimacy without conflict, think about it this way. If you could, and I think it can be done, you can be cloned. If you married your clone, you would have no intimacy with that clone. Because everything, they're not, they're not doing anything out of love for you. They're doing everything just because that's what they want to do. So what happens in, in marriage early on is, um, we, you know, we usually start out pretty intimate. We feel like, oh, yeah, we get each other and all that stuff, and it feels wonderful. And then we move in together and start dealing with the things where we're different. And we start arguing about them, and we don't like that. It feels, doesn't feel good. We're not, we're not solving this, and we, we can't figure out how to solve it, but we want that intimacy. So, um, well, let's just go have sex. There's some, some ways that we try to solve a problem or an argument. Let's just go have sex. So it's like we want to go back to that intimacy, but then, this, then after a while, those couples, sex starts to become non-existent because they're never really dealing with the conflict. They think they're having intimacy, but they're really not. They're avoiding, they're trying to do an end around around the conflict. The way to intimacy is back through the conflict. When two people figure out a way to deal with something that's, that they totally see differently, and they go, yes, okay, we can do it that way instead. Instead of your way or my way, there's an us way now. Now we go and celebrate that in the bed. And by the way, Invite God into that. Hey, God, thank you for getting through us through this. Now, we know you love sex because you created it and you made it. That was your plan from the beginning. Uh, you're right here with us, God. If, uh, you know, shut our mouths if we start to say something wrong or, you know, if I need a little nudge, you know, to get going quicker, then let me know. God's there anyway. He loves and celebrates that with you when that bed is a celebration of you becoming more and more like him. And in the conversation, you know, and we're going to talk a little bit here about how to do that. But yeah, sometimes, you know, you're just going to be going, man, I just don't, I don't feel like 
sitting down and talking to you. Well, uh, by the way, if every time that you talk to your spouse is trying to bring up an issue that you want to change about them, of course they're not going to want to talk to you. If every time that you're trying to initiate sex uh, with your spouse, but um, you're complaining about something they're doing, or you're, you're making fun of something about it, of course they're not going to. Man, the vulnerability they have to put out to be there with you in that situation. So down at the bottom of the page says, circle which element of intimacy you need to grow the most. So which of one of these two things, vulnerability or acceptance, do you need to get better at for your spouse? In other words, which one of them, which one of these two words would they say that they want you to be more of? That they want you to be more, get better at accepting them or get better at being vulnerable? And then what would you be doing differently if you were growing in that area? What, what's something that tomorrow that you would be doing differently if your spouse said, hey, I would like to have more sex or more intimate sex with you. What would you be doing different tomorrow? What's something very clear and concrete that you could say, this is what I did different than I've been doing? Or what would you be doing different if your spouse says, hey, I wish we talked and, and just sat down and talked more. What would you be doing differently if that was going to be happening? All right, let's go on to the next page, communication. Actually, um, this, this part is titled positive communication, but I couldn't fit the word positive in there, so we got just a plus sign for you. This uh, diagram here represents a basic communication 101 feedback loop, but it's got an extra piece in it. You are, when people say to me, uh, John, one of our problems is that we don't communicate. Uh, I say, well, no, that's, that can't be one of your problems because you cannot not communicate. You're always communicating. I think what you mean is you don't talk a lot. Yeah, well, that's one form of communication. But the silent treatment is a huge, powerful form of communication. Uh, you're always communicating with each other. So in that, what we're doing is I'm always sending messages to my wife, and she's always sending messages to me. So we're always communicating and then each of us is always responding to those messages. You can't not respond. You can't not communicate. So what's always going on between you and pretty much anybody else you're interacting with is you're sending messages to them. They're sending messages to you, whether they're verbal or nonverbal. In other words, whether they're talking or it's body language or whatever. And then you're always responding, either verbally or nonverbally. And this is what we call a feedback loop. Message response, message response. It's just happening all the time. It's, right, it's happening right now. You may be sending, if, if, if you look like you're about to fall asleep to your spouse and they're thinking that you really need to hear this, you're, you're probably sending them the, the message that uh, you don't really care about your marriage. And so they're probably going to, well, they're not probably, they are going to respond. They may be responding with going, mm, you know, or they may be responding by trying to wake you up. But either way, we're always sending messages and responding to the messages that we're given. So in the middle of that, we're, we're going to add a piece, though. There's something that happens between receiving the message and responding to it. That message that we're receiving before we respond to it goes through a filter called our perception, how we perceive that message. 
So that filter, remember what's the main motivator, the strongest motivator is to be accepted. So the first thing that we filter every message through from somebody else is, does that message say that you accept me or not? So the perception filters goes, am I accepted or not in that message? If I feel accepted, then it goes in the acceptance box. If I feel unaccepted, it goes in the unacceptance box. Now, whichever box it lands in, if it lands in the acceptance box, then my response is much more likely to land in their acceptance box. If it lands in my unacceptance box, then it's much, my response is then going to be much more likely to land in their unacceptance box. Now, what box it lands in does not dictate the response. It just makes it more likely. So Joanna could send me a message that lands in my unacceptance box, but I could still go, okay, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt, and I'm still going to choose to send back a response that hopefully will land in her acceptance box. So it doesn't dictate, but it just makes it more likely. For example, I could go and get a new shirt, and I say to Joanna, hey, I got a new shirt today. Okay, go, let me, go try it on. Let me see it on you. So I go in the closet, put on my new shirt, come out. And, so what do you think? And Joanna sends this message. John, you look buff in that shirt. Okay, there's the message. John, you look buff in that shirt. So then it goes through my perception filter. My perception filter goes, okay. Joanna thinks you're buff, lands in my acceptance box. Or my perception filter could go, John, John, she's never said that about you before. It must be something about the shirt, not you. Like it hides your belly or something. Lines in the unacceptance box. So it's not the message that decides which box it goes in. The message has influence, but it's the filter that decides. So some of you are probably thinking right now, this is our problem. My spouse has a messed up perception filter, right? Guess what? You're right. They do, and so do you, and so do I, and so does Joanna, and so does everybody. We all have messed up perception filters. It does us no good to try to fix each other's perception filter. In fact... When we try to fix the other person's perception filter, that's a message. What box is that message likely to land in? Unacceptance. You heard me wrong. That message likely to land in unacceptance. You're too sensitive. Likely to land in the unacceptance box. No, what we have to do is study their filter. Again, this is what you do when you're dating. You study that other person's filter. You do this to, you can't keep a job if you don't do this. You know, you're not going to get clients if you don't study their perception filter. If you don't learn your boss's perception filter, you're not going to keep your job. You study that other person's, you don't try to change their filter. You formulate your messages, get better and better at formulate your, your messages where they're more likely to land in the acceptance box. All right. Now, Fill in some blanks. If the first message is unaccepting, it is unlikely that the conversation will be positive. So if I send a message from the, you know, I want to address my spouse. I want to talk about something. Let's say I want to try to resolve an issue between the two of you. If I say something like this, we need to talk. 
where's that, what box is that message likely going to land in? Unacceptance, right? So from the get-go, we have a message loop that is spiraling down that I have to dig out myself out of. If instead I said something like, you know, I've got something that I'm not good at and I, I've haven't, I just haven't, I'm just trying to figure out how to deal with this with you, but I, I, I really want your help because I want to be doing it better or different, whatever is going to help us. Okay, so you're taking responsibility, John. You're not putting on me. I feel accepted. So I could talk then, I could bring up the very same issue in either circumstance, but one of them is going to probably spiral down and the other one's going to be spiraled up. Uh, John Gottman calls this the harsh startup. He says they can predict by watching a couple and just if they have a 15-minute conversation, in the first 30 seconds they can predict very like 88% chance whether that conversation is going to go well or not by the, very, the first 15 seconds. How does it start out? If it starts out with messages that are landing in the unacceptance box, no point in having the conversation. It's just going to spiral downwards. Well, you can't always agree with your mate's actions. And you can't always agree with your mate's thoughts. Every human being that's alive is always doing three things. We've talked about this a little already. You're always doing some kind of action, some kind of behavior. Right now, everybody's involved. In, you're doing something. You may be falling asleep. You may be writing. You may be looking at your watch, but you're doing something, okay? Every human being is always thinking something. Right now, you're thinking everybody in this room's got some different thoughts going. Some of them may be similar, but they're, they're still different. You're, you're thinking something all the time. And you're always feeling something. You always have some kind of emotion, in other words. So right now you might be bored. You might be excited. You might be, you may go, no, I'm not, I don't have anything. I just feel like, meh. Well, that's called apathy. It's a feeling. So you're always thinking, you're always doing, and you're always feeling. So when I'm in a conversation with my spouse, and let's say even that we're trying to solve a problem where we don't see eye to eye on Okay, I may not agree with their actions or what they're thinking about doing. What they, you know, I may not agree with what they think the solution is, those actions. I may not agree with their thoughts. No, you're wrong on that. That's, no, you haven't read the statistics. You, you know, four out of five dentists survey uh, agree with me. But feelings are always valid. Think of it this way. There are no right or wrong feelings. Feelings are not right or wrong. Some of them are more pleasant. Some of them are, are ones that you don't want to have, but that, that they're not in themselves right or wrong. A feeling is just your physiological reaction to your thoughts. What you're thinking is what creates your feelings. And this is really important. Your spouse cannot make you feel anything. It's your perception that makes you feel certain things. So right now, if I had, let's say, I don't know, there's 150 of you. If I had 150 live tarantulas and had somebody come and plop one down in front of each of you on your lap, we're going to get a bunch of different reactions. Some of you are going to run out the door screaming. Some of you are going to go 
and jump over and move over a little bit. Some of you are going to lean in and try to pick that tarantula up. It's not the tarantula that creates how you think and feel about it. It's what you've done in your life that creates how you think and feel about it. So if all you've done is watch arachnoid movies or something like that, then you're probably going to run out screaming. But if you've had like the experience I had, I, we, we went when I was in uh, middle school, we went to the zoo on a field trip. And after we went and saw the cages, they took us in this laboratory where they had, uh, they would bring out different animals. They brought out a, like a python and told us about it and let some of us hold it. And then they brought out a tarantula. And uh, he was, the guy was going, yeah, see, and he let it walk on his arm while he was telling us about it. And he would move it to his other arm, tell us about, yeah, tarantulas, uh, yeah, they're venomous, but their, their venom's not very potent. It's about like a bee sting. And, um, so, and, and they rarely bite people. In fact, um, the, b- before they bite, they usually, if they're feeling, um, like they're threatened, that's, that's when they bite. And, and what they'll first do is they'll throw off some hairs to kind of try to let you know, hey, don't do that. But then uh, the, really the thing is that the only re- reason they bite is, is with, if they think they can eat because that's what they do is they pull their prey into their fangs and, and then dispense their toxin to, to, to paralyze their prey. Well, their prey is little tiny bugs. And when they're on you, they, don't, they know they can't eat you. So they rarely bite. And, it's, and if, they, if they start to pull on you, then you it's to brush it off. But that just rarely happens. And so he said, so does anybody want to try holding the tarantula? Now, see, I've always been short. My first driver's license, literally, the height on it, 4 foot 10 inches. So I have always been the smallest guy around, which um, has developed in me quite a Napoleon complex. And so I was always, and probably still to this day, I'm always trying to prove that I'm tougher than I really am. So I was the first one to volunteer to hold the snake. And of course, then when he said, so who wants to hold the tarantula? I was like, I'll do it. I was scared to death, but I just wanted to show that I'm tough. So he, he said, put your arm against mine. And, and then he gently kind of pushed, nudged the tarantula over. And, and my heart was just going boom, boom, boom. And I was like, uh. but then after a while, I started calm down a little bit. And then he said, okay, great. Um, you ready to give him back? I'm like, no, I can hold him forever. I'm like, yes, please. And, and so um, uh, he brushed it back onto his arm. Well, then I kind of looked around the room. It was like everybody was like, uh, you know, some of the little girls were going, hey, he's pretty brave. And I was like, hey, so cool. So I went home that afternoon and went out in our field looking for tarantulas. I found two. I took them back. We had a, a we, my brother and I had this, the experiment of trying to raise fish, uh, tropical fish and, and, uh, well, that didn't last very long. So they died, and, and we had this empty aquarium. So I kept them in my room in there for several months. And, and uh, for a while, I'd take them out almost every day and let them walk around on me. I got a picture of one of them on my head. So it's not the tarantula that decides how you think and feel, how you react. It's your what you've done, again. It's your perception that creates your feelings. So a phrase to get rid of, it does you no good doesn't do anybody any good is you're making me feel fill in the blank. You made me angry. You no, they can't do it. Your spouse. Yes, of course, there's certain things that we can do to make some feelings more likely, but ultimately our feelings come from our perception 
and your spouse cannot make you feel a certain way. So, your feelings are always valid. They're just a physical reaction to your perceptions, to what you think. Let me give you another example of how feelings are always valid. Let's say all of a sudden a state trooper shows up at the door, and he says, is Mr. Anderson here? Yes, I'm him. Can we talk to you out in the hall? Okay, I'll go out in the hall. Mr. Anderson, I'm sorry uh, to inform you, but your daughter has just been killed in a car accident. How would I feel in that moment? Shocked? Sad? Bewildered? Probably some denial? Probably overwhelmed? A whole lot of different emotions would come over me at once, right? Well, usually when we get a whole bunch of emotions that we don't like having, we will try to deal with that first one, the denial first. Because if, if I can show that the reason I'm having all these emotions that I don't like having is not correct, then I don't have to have all these emotions. So I'd probably say, are you sure my daughter? Well, yeah, it's uh, the car's, it's her license and it's the same last name as you, Anderson. The car is uh, registered in your name. My name, John Anderson. Uh, no, Fred Anderson. Uh, I'm John Anderson. What's the girl's name? Mary. I don't have a daughter named Mary. Oh, I'm sorry. We got the wrong Mr. Anderson. Now, how would I feel? Relieved, probably a little angry, probably sad for that. Whoever that other Mr. Anderson is probably a little still some denial. Wait, I want to make sure that you're not, you know, Probably ask some more questions. Now, here's the big question. Which set of those feelings was right? They both were, right? The action was wrong. I should have made sure he's talking to the right John Anderson. The thoughts were wrong. I was thinking he's talking about my daughter, but he's not. He's talking about somebody else's daughter. But the feelings are always valid. This is super important because when I can't agree with my spouse's actions and I can't agree with their thoughts, since feelings are always valid, I can always agree with my spouse's feelings. All right. We're going to go on a couple pages over and we're going to see how we apply all this. So we've been talking about acceptance. How to build this strong foundation of acceptance. And we've said, well, it comes from dating on a daily basis, dating for life. What is that? What is dating? Is it dinner and a movie? That's one way. But dating can happen sitting on your couch and should happen on a daily basis in some way in the kitchen, on the couch, in the car. But what are we doing? We're being attractive, we're being vulnerable, and we're being accepting of their vulnerability. Pretty simple three things. So if I'm doing this on a daily basis, I'm, I'm going to be doing having conversations on a daily basis where I'm doing those three things. Uh, I can say, come home from work, and what's attractive to Joanna? Oh, Joanna really loves having a nice cold glass of iced tea. 
at the end of the day. So, okay, if I go in there and make her a nice cold glass of iced tea and go sit down on the couch, I'm being attractive to her and say, honey, I got you some iced tea. Come here and tell me what it's like to be you today. Joanna knows she loves being able to tell me what it's like to be her. So now I'm being attractive by inviting her to doing something that she likes to do. All right? And then I'm being vulnerable. Well, there's going to be some times for it's my turn to talk. So I tell her what it's like to be me today. I say, okay, well, the boss, you know, man, I went to work and boss came in and threw a stack of papers on my desk and said, uh, I need these, this by, by the middle of the day, by lunch. And I'm like, wait a second, this is usually something we have a week to do. Uh, and you're wanting it done in three hours? Yeah, but if you want to keep your job, then I need it done. I was, I was feeling really cheated. I was feeling very frustrated. You know, in, instead of launching into other things, talk about my feelings. It's not that hard. We all have them. I mean, yes, it is hard if your spouse beats you up every time you share your feelings. But guys, I'm telling you, guys like to share their feelings. In fact, we have a strong desire to share our feelings as strong as girls. We just do it typically in a different way. You don't believe me, guys? Let me, I'll give you an example. Let's say you and three other guys are sitting around playing cards. And somebody at the table says, hey, who do you think the best quarterback of all time is? First guy jumps in. Well, that's pretty obvious. Tom Brady's just won, been to eight Super Bowls, won five of them. Who else has done that? Well, yeah, but look at the team he had around him. What about John Elway? My personal favorite. John went to five Super Bowls. Uh, the first three, he didn't have any receivers, and that's why I lost him. But he won the two, second two years later. Look how long. Well, and then somebody else is going to jump. Oh, yeah, but what about... Come on, guys. Who's your favorite quarterback? Joe Montana. Joe Montana. Look at all Super Bowls he won. What's another one? What? Roger Staubach. Yeah. What a great guy. Who else? Terry Bradshaw. Look, who, who made Bald look better than him? Now, what they're going to be doing is they're going to be arguing these Look what Terry had to play back when it didn't matter what you did to a quarterback. You know, look how long he lasted. Well, you know, they're going to sit here and each of those guys at that table is going to argue vehemently, throwing out all kinds of true statistics about why their guy is the favorite quarterback. Now, let's fast forward a year. They've all forgotten that conversation. And one of them is at work, one of those guys that was sitting around arguing for one of those quarterbacks, and a guy comes up to him at work and says, I got to play poker with some guys from work tonight. They all love NFL, and I don't know anything about it, and I don't want to look stupid. What if, uh, what if one of them says something like, who do you think the best quarterback of all time is? What should I say? So that guy that, who was arguing vehemently a year ago for one of those, he's going to go something like this. Ooh, that's a tough one. You know, you got... Tom Brady, I mean, well, he's won the most Super Bowls, but I mean, look at the team he had around. Uh, you got John Elway and blah, 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 and you got Terry Bradshaw and Roger. And so, you know, pick one of those. You'll be okay. What happened? Back here around this table with these other guys, the quarterback 
who was the best quarterback of all time was not the issue. That was the subject. The issue is I've got an opinion and I want it to matter. And I have feelings about that. Why, why do I really think John Elway is statistically the best quarterback of all time? No, I've got feelings because I lived in Colorado, his first three Super Bowls, and that was my team. And it's, there's, it's feeling stuff behind it, right? We, we, all, we all have our feelings and we want to talk about them. We just do it different. We need a safe place to do it. We need to know that if I'm going to sit down and talk to you, I'm going to be, if, I, if you want me to be vulnerable, I got to know that you're not going to beat me up for it. I got to know that you're still going to look up to me and respect me. I got to know that you're not going to laugh at me. Okay, I'm going to make this short and to the point. The podcast you're listening to, Relationship Rewire, is a free service to the public provided by Growing Love Network, a nonprofit organization. That means we don't make a profit. In fact, to be able to do what we do, which is to provide top-notch innovative help for marriages, we rely on donors so that everyone can have access to the help they need, regardless of the ability to pay. Won't you take a moment, hit the pause button, and go to growinglovenetwork.org, click on the donate button, and give what you can. If you're not sure about it at this moment, hit pause anyway, just for 15 seconds, and ask yourself if this is what you should do. Go ahead, I'll wait. Did you hit pause and go donate? Good, thank you. If not, hit pause now. Hello, this is Max Lucado. You're listening to Relationship Rewire. So, problems will be unsolvable without acceptance. Those conversations that you want to have with your spouse because you're trying to work through something that you've never seemed to be able to work through every time it comes up, it's either an argument or they just run from it. How do we solve this problem? Well, they've got to know, first of all, that you're going to share power with them. But then when you talk about it, they're going to accept that you have feelings and a point of view as well. So there's no point in trying to bring up problems if you're not going to show acceptance to the other person. Confrontation will be rejected without acceptance. Again, remember, if we're trying to confront the other person by holding up the mirror to them, what are they going to do? They're going to pull their mirror away from their face and hold theirs up to your face. There should be more us time than problem-solving time or confrontation time. In other words, we have to have a whole lot more time where we're building acceptance with each other 
than we have of trying to solve problems or deal with issues together. Because if we don't feel accepted, then we're not going to be able to solve problems and address issues. So how do we do that? So I call it us time. So confrontation and problem solving are off limits during us time. What is us time? Us time is date time. It's when we go out on an official date, but it's also something we need to be doing on a regular daily basis where we just sit down and say, hey, let's talk about us. You talk about you, and I'll listen and try to understand you. I'm going to talk about me, and, I'll, and I hope you listen and try to understand me. This is where we build this acceptance. So, again, I think I told you last night, Joanne and I, uh, we try to do this at least twice a day. We try to start our day off with it. And then we try to end our day, our work day with it. It only takes, it only takes about five minutes each time to do it. But you're going to find out the more you do it, the more you're going to enjoy it because this is where you're going to have intimacy, more intimacy both in the bedroom and sitting in conversation on the couch. Uh, and so we, we have some time where we know, okay, this time is off limits to trying to confront each other on anything or try to deal with any issues, the subject of this is what's it like to be me today. Date nights are always us time. So as soon as you get in the car or go into the living room to have your date night on the couch watching a movie or whatever, it's an understood rule. I'm not going to bring up any issues. I'm not going to try to solve any problems. I'm just going to get to know you and try to accept, show you acceptance for what I get to know about you. So here's some rules. Equal time for each person. Well, I suggest if you, if you haven't been doing us time on a regular basis, uh, you're, it's going to be awkward at first. So what you need to do, set some very clear boundaries. Hey, we got 20 minutes here. We're going to take turns. We'll flip a coin to see who goes first. Whoever wins the coin toss, you, they got 10 minutes. The subject is, this is what it's like to be me today. Then after 10 minutes are up, switch, and the other person says. Now, when the other person's speaking, the only job you have is to listen for how they feel. And then every, when you think you know about how they feel or felt when they were experienced that thing they're talking about, is you say, well, I bet that was exciting, or I bet that was boring, or I bet that made you angry, uh, whatever it is. And by the way, it, it, you may not have a great, voc I don't have a great feeling word vocabulary, so it's perfectly fine to use, to use um, you know, some kind of metaphor. So, uh, you know, if, if Joanna's describing something and it's like, I don't know if gross is a good, so you were feeling, uh, oh, I can't think of, you must, so I bet that felt like if your grandmother tried to French kiss you. You know, okay, um, that's that's perfectly fine. Sorry if I gave you that image and, and disgusted you. Disgusted. Oh, that's the word. You were disgusted. Yeah, if you can't think of the word, it's it's fine to use a metaphor. The subject is what it feels like to be me today. The speaker talks about their feelings without attributing any negative feelings to the mate. So if, you, if you're having some negative feelings uh, and they have to do with what you think your mate did to bring those on, then just don't talk about those feelings. Talk about something else. 
Speaker does not talk negatively about mate. So nothing you say should be anything negative about the other person. Listener only gives feedback about what he or she thinks the other was or is feeling and do not attempt to solve any problems. So let me, let me give you a scenario of how this would work out. Let's say, okay, Monday night, Monday afternoon, Joanne and I both get home from work. We're sitting on the couch. We flip a coin. Joanna, you get to go first. You won the coin toss. What's it like to be Joanna today? Oh, let me tell you. You know that client that, you, oh, I, you don't have to, yeah, I know the client. Yeah, the one you have me pray about every time you have to work with. Yeah. Okay, well, we had planned that um, we, last week she set it up. I, I really need you to be here at 9, no later, and, um, and, and we need to get this done. Okay, great. So uh, when... I showed up at 5 till 9, she wasn't there. 9.15, she's still not there. I was like, okay, so the only feedback I'm supposed to give is how you're feeling. Okay, so I might say, well, that's frustrating. Yeah, okay, so then what happened? Well, she finally shows up at 9.30, half an hour late. After she'd been all like, Please, you cannot be late, and here she is half an hour late. And so we start working, and um, then we had also agreed, I told her, I need her there the whole time. We're going to work till 1, and uh, at about 11.30, she said, I got to go. I was like, what? what? You, we, we agreed you were going to be here the whole time. Yeah, you take care of it. I trust you. But I told you this, there's things I can't read your mind on about this, and you, we already, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. If you want to keep me as a client, then you'll figure it out. Okay, so now I'm giving feedback. Wow, that's really, I bet you were angry. I bet you felt like, Betrayed her. I don't know what's the right word. That just feels like cheated. Yeah. Okay. Well, you still got some time. So now what? Okay. So then she leaves. And you know, you've been to her house. You know, right when you walk in, there's that picture of her and the president of the United States. Like she knows the president of the United States. It was, she paid a bunch of money to go to some fundraiser and they let him take a picture with him. Well, yeah, yeah. I know what picture you're talking about. Well, um, uh, so she, one of the things she had me doing is, is, is arranging, organizing her drawers in her kitchen. And one of them's full of pins and she has way too many pins. And so there's a bunch of Sharpies in there. And, and I, I thought, well, you know what? I took one of those Sharpies and I went and drew a mustache on her in that picture. Okay. Now I'm having a little bit more hard time following along because I'm like, wait, wait a second. That affects me. If you lose this client, that's money and food off our table. Okay, but wait a second, John. No, your job, don't, you don't agree with her actions. What was she thinking? You're thinking crazy. You shouldn't have done that. But back to the feelings, okay? So, okay, you, yeah, you were really, I'm going to say this in church. You were really pissed off. Yeah, I was. Okay. Well, so now what? Still got a few minutes? Okay, well, here's what I'm thinking, John. Tonight, she's, she's flying out of town. Tonight, after we get the kids to bed, let's go over there. You know that car, her car, and the, li- the license plates that she ordered that say, I'm number one? Yeah, I, I hate that car. Yeah, me too. What do you say we slash her tires? Okay, now I'm going, wait a second. Not only does that affect me, but that's really, you're, 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 that would be a very bad action to do. I do not agree with that. What are you thinking right now? Woman, you're getting a little crazy on me. Okay, but back to the back to the feelings. Okay, that, okay, I got to go back to the feelings. Okay. Yeah, you know what? If I got treated like that, I would feel like slashing some tires too. 
Okay, I'm not saying, see, I'm not telling her let's, that's a good thing to do. I'm not agreeing that let's go do it. I'm just saying, yes, I get that feeling. But so often, we, are, we so much want to be right, we just blow past the feelings, quit trying to understand the other person, and we're trying to fix them. You can't, you can't go slashing tires. We're trying to change their mind. That's not good. You know what? Probably what's going to help her mind and her actions the most is feeling understood. Let me give you an example of this in, in my life. There was a one, in fact, I was doing my internship, one of my very first clients at, at our clinic at, at our university. It was a sliding scale clinic. So depending on people's ability to pay is what we charged. So we got a lot of uh, clients that were court or appointed. One of my very first clients as a therapist was a court appointed client. And so that's all I knew. He shows up for this first session. We go back to the therapy room. And, and so I said, okay, I understand your court appointed, but tell me what it is. What did you do to, to get here? He said, well, uh, kind of a long story, but my wife recently left me for another guy. And when I found out where she was living, where the apartments where they were living, I would go over there. As soon as I got off work, I'd drive straight there and I'd sit in my car in front of their apartment all night. Well, what, what were you hoping to accomplish? He said, well, I was hoping to confront them, tell them, hey, look, you're destroying my family and my marriage, and uh, tell her, look, you're wrong, you're my wife, you're, this is not right, you're breaking your commitment to me, you need to come home, and, and so, well, so how long to, how many nights went by till you confronted them? He said, well, well several, I mean, a couple weeks. Um, they knew I was there, and I think they were sneaking in and out the back window. But finally, um, they realized I wasn't going to go away, so uh, they came out the door, and I got out of the car and confronted him, and it ended up in a fist fight. She called the cops, and um, they broke it up. We went home. The next day, I get a uh, restraining order. I cannot be within a thousand feet of that apartment complex. So what'd you do? Well, as soon as I got off work that night, I went and parked in front of her apartment complex. And this went on a couple more nights, and then she called the cops, and I got a tap on the window by a cop and said, "You're breaking your restraining order. You need to leave." Okay, so what'd you do? Well, I went home, went to work the next day, and after work, I went and drove and parked in front of an apartment complex. And so they came and arrested me. I went straight to, they took me to in front of the magistrate, and um, he said, okay, you, you can't do this, and I got out on bail and, and went home. Next day, I go to work. After work, I go and park in front of an apartment complex again. A couple more nights goes by, gets a second warning, then keeps parking in front, so he gets arrested a second time. Goes before the same magistrate, same uh, judge, and he says, uh, wait, weren't you in here just the other night? Yeah. Same thing? Yeah. You need therapy. So that's why I'm here. So eight weeks goes by, and this is like, I feel like I'm in way over my head uh, with this early client. But what we had done for a whole semester, we'd had this class before we got to see any clients. One of our classes was called Internship One. And the only thing we did every t Monday, Wednesday, Friday in that class was the, the, the professor would pull two chairs up to the front of the room facing each other, and he'd call one of us, I mean, one, uh, two uh, class volunteers, not volunteers, he'd call us down. He said, well, okay, you sit here and you sit here. And he'd say, okay, you, you talk about something that matters to you. You, you just listen, and the only feedback you give is what you think they're, they're feeling or felt about that. 
And we'd go on for a while, and he'd stop and say, no, not, not what they're thinking, not what they're doing. How do they feel? And he'd keep doing that, and then after a while, he'd switch. Okay, now you talk about how you feel about something matters to you, and you only give feedback about how they feel. Not about what they're thinking, not about their actions, but how they feel. And then, so we do that every class period for a whole semester. And our homework each week is we got paired up with a different student each week. And we go to one of the therapy rooms and do that for an hour and then do a write-up on it. I thought it was the hugest waste of time. When are we going to learn to diagnose crazy people? That's what I wanted to do. And um, so when I was working with this guy, I was just resorting to my basic training. I would spend the first half of each session trying to help him feel understood for how he feels. So I'd ask him questions, and I would really listen for how he feels, and he would tell me some really crazy things. And I, but I'd just keep coming back to how you feel. And then towards the end of the session, I'd say, well, let's try this this week. And let's try that next week. No, that didn't work. Every week he'd come back, and I'd start off the session with, how did it go? What happened this past week? Still went over there every night. This went on for about seven weeks. I got a call from the, the court Hey, they're saying this guy's still showing up. Is he coming to therapy? Yeah, he's been coming. Well, what are you doing? Because he's still going to the apartment. I'm like, okay. So then I'm taking it to my professors. And each week, that is the subject of my, of my uh, supervision. And we would videotape all sessions. And I'm showing videotapes. And they're giving me, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? And everything we tried, nothing was working. So about week eight, um, I started off the session. How did it go this week? And I just really was dreading it. I was asked, yeah, I went there every single night. I said, well, you know what? I, I'm at a loss. I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, I've tried everything I can. I've, I've been bringing my professors in on this, and uh, I just haven't. Is there anything, anything that you, any light you can shed on this? Uh, just something that I, he haven't told me before. He said, yeah, I have a question. He said, uh, people are saying that I'm sick. And uh, he said, what do you think? And I was trying to buy some time. And I went, well, well, like who? He said, well, pretty much everybody that knows me. Um, family, friends, coworkers. Okay, well, uh, when did this start? Well, it started when I first found out where they were living. Well, what happened? Well, I didn't go straight to her apartment that day. I found out that day at work. And instead of going straight to her apartment, I went to Walmart. And I bought a Ken doll and a Barbie doll. See where this is going? No, no. Hopefully not. If you do, I'm, uh, I need to talk to you afterwards. Okay. So he, he buys a Ken doll and a Barbie doll. And, and I bought a sun tea jar. You know what a sun tea glass, one gallon glass jar that you fill with water, put the tea bags on, set it out in the sun, and brew your tea. So, I, uh, and so that's making sense now with the Ken and Barbie doll, right? Okay, good. Um, so I buy the Ken and Barbie doll, the sun tea jar, and I buy a package of those, uh, you know those little things that you stick in the end of corn cob? They're little yellow plastic. They look like a little ear of corn with the two forks sticking out of them. And you're supposed to stick them in the corn so you don't get buttered on your fingers, but you still get butter on your fingers. So I don't know who invented these. They don't work. But I bought a package of those. And then um, I bought three quarts of motor oil. What, really, what, like, what, this, uh, 10, 10, 30? No, it was 10 to 40. Okay. This is all making sense, right? Motor oil, corn cob skewers, can of Barbie, sun tea jar. So what'd you do? Well, I went home, got in the garage, and I took Ken out of the package, and I took Barbie out of the package, and I took all their clothes off. 
And then I got looking through my drill bits, and I got one, found one that's the, pretty much the same diameter as one of those little corn cob things. And, and I bent Ken over, and I drilled a hole in his, in his backside with, with, with that, dr- that drill. And then I, I took Barbie, and I took one of those little corn cob skewers, and I stuck it in her, this area right here, you know, to like, like she has a man part. And I put that in the hole, and then I drilled on Ken, put them together like that, super glued them together like that, and I dropped them in the sun tea jar, and I poured in the three quarts of motor oil, and I went and left that on her front porch with a note saying, this is what you've done to me. And so I'm going, okay, do we have a panic button? And (laughs) so I said, so that's when, uh, when people found out about that, that's when they started saying, you're sick. He said, yeah. So what do you think? Do you think I'm sick? So I'm trying to be a good therapist. And I'm like, well, I, I, I do think that was a sick thing to do. It's not healthy. And then I said, oh, look, it's time to go. Um, I'll see you next week. So a week goes by. I remember the time clearly. Tuesdays, 3.30. He shows up, session number nine, really dreading it. We go and sit down. So how did it go this week? Well, you know, um, first night after we met, I went home um, and I bought enough food for just me and boys. I told my mom uh, to go home. I knew that if I bought her food, then I'd end up giving it to her and I'd leave. So I just, I said, mom, sorry, here's some money to go get you some food, but I need to make sure and stay here. So I just got enough food for me and the boys. And we had our McDonald's happy meal. Uh, and then the next night, me and the boys, we made a big fort in the living room out of the, the furniture and blankets and pillows, and, and we played in that for a while, and I read them stories, and we fell asleep. And, and then uh, the third day, day, after work, I went and picked them up, and we went to the zoo. And I said, wait a second, when did you end up going to her house? I didn't. You haven't been to her house, to her apartment since last week? No. Okay, well, what changed? He said, well, you said that wasn't healthy, that, that was sick. I, don't, I didn't know it was sick. I don't want to be sick, so I'm not doing that anymore. Really? That's it? Yeah. So he, I saw him for a few more sessions, verified he wasn't going over there anymore. Finally, I said, I don't think we need to do anymore. Uh, I think you're good to go. Now, the thing is, if I, I could have told him in the very first session, dude, you're crazy. That wouldn't have helped anything. He had been hearing that from all kinds of people, from people who he trusted and loved and cared about. What he needed was somebody to say, hey, the way you feel is perfectly legitimate, and it is. The way he was feeling was perfectly, if, if that happened to me, of course I'd be thinking crazy stuff and I'd be wanting to do some crazy stuff. Those feelings are perfectly legitimate. He needed somebody to say, hey, your feelings are perfectly legit. And then he would go, oh, I'm not crazy. I don't have to act crazy. And, and sometimes you're thinking some of the stuff that your spouse is wanting to do or they're thinking, you're like, you're messed up. Well, then maybe, but you telling them, trying to fix them is not going to help that. The best shot you got, I mean, if Joanna wanted to go slash tires, I can't stop her. I mean, yes, I can. I can tire her up. That's illegal. 
I can call the cops on her, and then now we don't have mom at home, and i got to deal with all that. Really, all I can do, my best shot, is to help her feel understood. So I, I feel like slashing tires, too. That's what makes her feel not so crazy, so she thinks different. And by the way, this is a lot of what therapy is, is just helping people go, hey, the feelings you have, that's okay. It's perfectly legit. And that's the best shot I got anyway. And that's the avenue to people feeling accepted. Why did he hear it from me and not everybody else? You might be thinking, well, because you're the therapist. No. If I had written, if I wrote someday, I doubt I ever will. If I wrote the book that all the other marriage therapists say, this is the Bible of marriage therapy. And you knew that. And you came to me and you said, John, here's my problem. And I stopped you in the middle of you telling me, I said, I got you. Yeah, here's what you need to do. You'd be going, no, wait a second. Uh, you're not hearing the whole story. I know, I know. I've seen this a million times. You'd be going, you, you, do you even understand me? No, I don't need to understand you. This is what you need to do. You're going to go look for another therapist, right? You don't pick your doctors, your CPAs, your plumbers, your dentists based on what they scored on their MCAT or licensing exam or anything like that. You don't ask them, where did you graduate in your class? You hire and fire them based on that you think they understand you. Your spouse is the same way. How many times you had this conversation with your spouse uh, where you've been telling them something for years, it seems like, and they just, they just, they don't hear it. And then one day they come back and they say, hey, guess what I heard today? Guess what I learned today? And they tell you exactly what you've been telling them for years. Why didn't they hear it from you? Because they don't believe you understand them. They don't believe you accept them. Why did they hear it from them? Because they believe they ac you accepted them. Questions? If perception dictates feelings, what dictates perception? Great. Because perception is reality, whether it's truth or not. What dictates perceptions? What is causes someone to have a certain perception? Is it genetics? Is it experiences from the past? For instance, you're counseling a couple that's been married before. They come in and she or he is holding them accountable for something or action that resembles something that happened in the last one, which has caused them a certain perception. What dictates perception? And you said you need to learn their perceptions. Is that learning? Yeah. This, oh, see, I didn't realize, I couldn't see what George it is. Yes. Right. Um, <laughs> pressure's on. Pressure's on. Uh, no, George, yeah, in your answer, and I think you're, you're kind of setting me up because I think you know this. Uh, it's all, it's genetics, it's experiences in life. And so, yeah, um, one of the great conversations you can have is when, when somebody says, yeah, this is how I feel. Why do you feel that way? Because this is my, tell me about what's happening in your life. I want to know. And as they're telling you what's happening, then you're listening and going, I understand now. Yeah, there's, um, Joanna has, I've had a, I'm super injury accident prone. I've had uh three knee operations and I've had my hip replaced. I got bit by a rattlesnake, uh, was spent 11 months in the hospital. I, I've all kinds of stuff, but every time I'm, whenever I'm doing my recovery, my uh, rehab, I, I just push it really hard. And Joanna was like, 
You're doing more than they told you. You're supposed to, you know, why are you pushing so hard? And, and this hip replacement, my last big one, about a year and a half ago, she got really frustrated and she's like, John, why, what's up with you? And I really want to know why you push yourself so hard. And I never d- dealt with that, but she was telling, she was making a safe place. I really want to know. I really want to understand you. I want to accept this about you. And so I finally, because I knew that she was so, showing me, you have a safe place to talk about your feelings here. I said, you know what? Um, something I remember that I don't know if I ever told you, know, that I dreamed of being an NFL player. Um, I, didn't, I didn't actually play on the team until my senior year in high school. Because when I went out my freshman year for football, the coach told me on the very first day, I can't let you out on the field. You're too small. You'll get hurt. And so, you know, ever since then, I've been trying to prove, no, I'm tough enough. So genetics, experiences. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, yeah because, I, I, you know, a lot of couples, they, just what you said, uh, they need to have that safe place to ask those backwards questions mm-hmm. in reverse as to why you feel the way you feel because it may not have anything to do with me. I'm just, you know what I'm saying? It may have been in place before that. And, and probably it, was. Yeah, and I think it would be cool for them to understand. It may be a present problem, but it was pre, before me, you know, and it, to be able to, and I think it goes back to that trust and she created a safe place for you mm-hmm. that where you can't open up and say that because a lot of times we take responsibility for things that really we inherited. Yeah. So. One, one of the things we do in Love Reboot, uh, we, we, in the one of the sharing sessions, we have a question where we say, tell us about something that's happened before you ever met your spouse that might be contributing to you being not as vulnerable. And yeah, we, we have some, uh, every time some really people just eye-opening, oh yeah, that's what it's about. I've been blaming my spouse all this time for it, but really it's, the, the seed of it happened before I ever met them. Yeah, great point. Great question, George. Good, Can you talk just briefly about, I, mean, I think all this is true in marriage, whether you're a Christian or not, but I mean, we're all people who believe in faith. Where do you see faith in regards to being able to accept each other? Oh, man. I, I know you could talk yeah. for an hour on that. Yeah, but. yeah. Um, I'll say this, you know, the, the, the gospel message is acceptance. I mean, that's what grace is and forgiveness and, and all those things. So, I mean, I, it's just, this is why I'm, I, I'm, I'm blown away when I see a pretty good marriage where there's no, they don't, they haven't, they don't believe in that message. So it's, I guess it's doable, but um, it, it's, it's, it's the gospel message. That's why, I mean, that's one of the biggest reasons why I believe because it's the only thing that makes sense in life to me. Um, it's the only thing that, that helps me understand other people. It's the only thing that makes me feel like getting out of bed and doing this. Yeah, if, if that answers your question. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, yeah, we can... Uh, man, there's so much wrapped up into that. The, the whole, the whole idea of forgiveness is, is, is a whole different concept, um, without faith. Um, 
the whole idea of acceptance, the whole idea of grace, yeah, uh, I don't know where to start on that. What, what's your thoughts on that, Jonathan? <laughs> don't have enough time. You don't have enough time to hear my thoughts. That's one of the things I've been trying to express, though. I mean, um, this, is, this is how God loves us. That's the way he wants us to love each other. And the cool thing about it is that's the happiest life. That's the joyful, peaceful life. It sounds counterintuitive if you don't understand the gospel message. It sounds like a just hogwash, but it's actually... The people out there seeking happiness. And by the way, one of the worst things you can tell your kids is, I just want you to be happy. Uh, if, if that's how your parents raise you, then forgive them. But uh, that's a recipe for uh, creating narcissists. <laughs> um, because, and, and, and that's also a recipe for creating an unhappy child um, and, and an unhappy adult. When we, when we expect the world to, the world's just not going to revolve around our happiness. Right? Any other questions? What would you say would be our first step in changing how we perceive things? Great. Uh, first step in how you perceive things. You know that, that story I was telling you about the, the guy whose wife died in the depression. I, uh, so many of the couples, that's my homework for them every week. You bring me back. I actually give them little journals. Uh, you bring me every day, you write the date. You get up first thing in the morning, write the date, and at least one thing that you're thankful for them about. So we call it reframing. Um, you're, you're, the more that you look through the positive, through the lens that God sees them through, is what changes your, your perception about them. Yeah, so... Uh, that's that's what I would do is just and pray every day, thanking God for those things. It has been a huge blessing for me. I sure wish Joanna could have been with all. She would have loved you. This is a, a great church, great people, and I've, I've just really been blessed by my time with you. And I thank you for bearing with me through some uh, stories and and trying to bring you my understanding of of God's love. Relationship Rewire is produced by Growing Love Network. Growing Love Network exists to revolutionize relationships for lifelong love. You can find us on the web at growinglovenetwork.org. We welcome your feedback on this or any of our episodes. Send us an email to relationshiprewire at gmail.com. It's so cute. I, want, I love Oklahoma. <laughs>